morning, church. And uh, there are a thousand memories that we could share together, most of them good, few crazy and bad, but uh, all, all good stuff for our lives. Uh, a lot of things I could think about and uh, go over a long list of uh, things I'd say I want to remind you of this. I, by the way, I, I do appreciate the good turnout for me to leave. I think, I think this is stronger than when I got here. I, I'm pretty sure. Um, I have on my mirror in the bathroom. I need to take that down in my, the restroom and the pastor's office. But uh, there's a, a piece of paper there. I think it's in Terry Taylor's handwriting. I'm not quite sure. But um, we had, uh, I think, 217 yes and three no when I came here. And um, so I think there's more than that. So we could have a revote, and well, we better not do that. But I'm glad that you're here. Um, and but I realize also I'm humble enough to admit the fact that you heard there's food, and so I, I know how this goes. By the way, the guys will need help setting up tables and and uh, breaking down chairs and stuff right after this is over. So I'll try to remind you again later. And so now that's on your mind. The Spirit of God has absolutely no hope of doing anything in our lives. Okay. So I want to look at this So in, in 1 Corinthians 15, and Paul said, now I would remind you, brothers. And I just thought to myself, what is the one thing that I want to remind you of? Uh, I, I, I'm not uh, an original thinker by any means. Uh, I, I just tell you what the Bible already says. And so out of all of this and all of that we've studied and things that we've looked at, what, what would I remind you of? Paul here takes a a turn maybe in this section of the book of Corinthians and he jumps on a different topic than what he'd been addressing in the previous verses and the topic must be extremely important because this is the longest chapter in first Corinthians of course the issue going on in that area of the world the Greek Corinthian culture was this they they believed in a strong dichotomy a difference between a separation between the soul and the body and their understanding from that culture was, as long as you took care of the soul, it really didn't matter what you did with your body. You could be completely moral in your soul and commit any kind of activity with your body, and it's okay because the body is disposable in their viewpoint. And if that's the case, if the body doesn't matter, it has nothing to do with morality really, then you can do anything you want. So you could imagine the kind of, of problems that that would create. And you see all of the sin problems that this church has because of that kind of thinking. And that's the kind of thinking that comes from uh, some Gnosticism and, and other viewpoints in Greek philosophy. And so Paul is addressing now the resurrection. And he's showing them that the connection between the body and the soul is significant and by, by the way it doesn't matter what you do with your body it doesn't matter if you take care of yourself or not now I know that we live in, in a culture well the boomer culture we were obsessed with it uh, probably but now you millennials don't go the other way completely uh, the body doesn't matter if you do not take care of your body you're going to be sluggish you don't think well you don't sleep well you can't study the scriptures well there, there are a lot of things about it but understand this that body that you got is the one going to be re resurrected and so it doesn't matter you are meant to be housed in a body your soul is not meant to be disembodied 
And there's a connection between the two. And we've said this before, but it is through the means of the body that your soul takes in information. Through the eye gate, through the ear gate, you know, through, through those means. By touch, feel, smell. You take in information for your soul to consider. So it does matter what we do. If the body doesn't matter at all, then why was Christ raised from the dead? Why would he be raised from the dead if the body is insignificant, if it has nothing to do with the Christian life? Why would he be raised from the dead? Why not just be raised spiritually and let the body stay in the grave? If Christ is not raised, then we don't have a bodily resurrection coming. Our afterlife will be some kind of disembodied spirit that does, we don't know what. Uh, just kind of gets absorbed, I guess, back into uh, the atmosphere. So if, if I could remind you of one thing before I go, it would be this. The glory of the gospel, the whole gospel, all of it, and its astronomical effect upon your life now and for eternity. So let's take a look at this final reminder. And I want you to see in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, the proclamation of the gospel, the verification of it, and then the application of the gospel. Don't worry, this is uh, my last sermon for you, and I, don't, I will not try to put everything in this that I missed all these years, okay? So we will try to stick to the scripture. But remember this, remember the proclamation of the gospel. Verses 1 through 4. Now, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. The proclamation of the gospel. And Paul says in proclaiming it, here are some things that you need to know. He's, he highlights their reception of the gospel. The gospel which I preached to you, he said, which you received. And I had to ask myself this question as I was preparing this message. Did I clearly preach the gospel at CBC? If I did not clearly preach the gospel, then I failed. I do not know how many people I shared the gospel with personally since I've been here. I usually don't share that information with anyone. My, my fear is that people will in some way think that I have the magic touch and if, if the preacher can just tell them about Jesus then you know they'll get saved if I tell them about Jesus they won't that's not the way it works at all but we try to clearly preach the gospel to make sure that we depend upon the gospel and nothing else and the Bible says that they received it and so many of you have received it and the word there is in the aorist tense and it means at a point in time they received it it's speaking of the faith commitment here, conversion. There's a definitive decision to receive as authoritative the gospel that Paul preached. And so that happens at a point in time where you cross over from darkness to light. Now, we don't always remember the exact time. We don't always remember the exact moment. Some people have almost an epiphany like, aha. And so they have this moment in their, in their mind and life and they've written it down and, and they've got that. And I think that's great and it's important. But not all people are like that. I remember reading about C.S. Lewis and he said he got on the bus to go to the zoo one day. 
And when he got off the bus, he realized he believed. I, and I don't know on the bus ride when that happened, but he just realized, I now believe this. And so some of you are that way. Many of you have been brought up in church. It's kind of been more like that. Where oh, you always believed about Jesus and then one day you realized, I believe about him for me. And it became yours. You received it at a point in time. But he also says, in which you stand. If you look in verse 1 there, are you with me? In which you stand. And this particular verb is of a different tense. It's the perfect tense. And what this means is that something happened in the past, and that is they're receiving the gospel. It happened in the past at a point in time. But the perfect tense means that the results are continuing at the present time. The results are this present standing, this firm embracing of the gospel, this continuing new status that you now have in Christ because you received the gospel. So he speaks of this glorious moment when the Corinthians received the gospel. Then he talks about your salvation through the gospel in verse 2. And he says, now here are the results of this receiving it. And by which you are being saved if you hold fast to the word I preached to you unless you believed in vain. Now, this could sound like that you can receive the gospel and then lose your salvation. If you read with those lenses on, you might think, well, okay, receive the gospel. But if I don't hold fast to the word that's preached to me, I I would have believed in vain. It would be worthless. It would be empty. There's some truth to that. See, because people who genuinely receive the gospel don't believe in vain. There are numbers of people that will claim some kind of affinity to the gospel. But whatever kind of faith they're trying to demonstrate, it is in vain because they don't hold fast. The fact of the matter is when God ignites faith in your heart and life and brings you to repentance and faith in Jesus, you will hold fast. It's always been grieving to me when I'm uh, being a pastor to note the number of people on the church roll that just don't hold fast. They just don't hang on. Why? Because they believed in vain. Their faith was empty. It was worthless. It had no substance to it at all. They had a moment of emotional response maybe. Or somebody convinced them to say a prayer or whatever it may have been. Or they may have in their own mind thought they were being very sincere. But they believed wrongly. They didn't really believe the gospel. They didn't give themselves to it. They didn't surrender to it. Jesus just just wants one thing from you. Your whole life. Nothing less. He doesn't want you to add him to your American dream. He doesn't want you to add him to your busy schedule. Jesus is not icing on the cake. He is the cake. So that, that's what, and so, so many people believe in vain. They're like, well, I need to add this to my life. It's, it's a missing ingredient. No, you need to throw out the whole batter and just start with Jesus. But notice here that, and, and I feel like I'm heavy on the grammar today, but it, there's, so, there's so much here, I, I, I hated to miss it. But notice in verse 2 that he uses two words that really are like the, the present tense, which means it's an ongoing action. You are being saved. And then if you are holding fast, it should be an ing there, because both of these are present tense. If you are being, and by which you are being saved, if you are holding fast to the gospel. 
A faith commitment, here's the point of this. A faith commitment to Christ in the past. Remember in verse 1, you received the gospel. A faith commitment in the past. But it only is reliable if you can verify it by the present activity. That is, in the past you received the gospel. And you know that you received it if you are being saved and if you're holding fast. Those are ongoing things in the present. A faith commitment in the past is only as reliable as its present activity. This is an astronomical, stupendous moment to consider. And that is this. Is your supposed faith commitment producing an ongoing activity? Is it alive? If it's not alive, you believed in vain. Please do not hold on to this thing. Well, I said the sinner's prayer when I was seven and your life has not changed. Don't, don't do that. For God's sake, for the sake of eternity, don't do that. Any kind of faith commitment in the past that was real, aorist tense, produces an ongoing activity in the present. Now, what does he mean by this? This if you are being, and by which you are being saved. I thought, well, preacher, I thought I, I was saved. I received Christ. I'm saved. You are saved, but you are being saved. What are you being saved from now? In the past, at the moment you trusted Christ, you're saved from the penalty of sin. But in the present, if that decision was real, you are being saved from the power of sin now. Your life should be, in some measure, continuing to incline toward Jesus. Now, for most of us, myself included, our movement toward Christ and living more like Jesus and becoming more like Jesus is more like this. You know, I wish it was just straight, but it's really not. But the trajectory of your life should show this inclination toward becoming more like Jesus. That you should be able to look at the story of your life. And, and say, you know what? God is working in me to will and to do of his good pleasure. And every time I've gotten off track, he's reached down and grabbed a hold of me by the nape of the neck and get back on track. And so you just keep going. And you should be able to look in your life that way. If your life is, I trusted Jesus, and it spiritually has just been deadline, just straight line, there's no life there. Spiritual life has a heartbeat. And if it's not there, then it's not there. You don't have anything. You've believed in vain. Salvation is always a current thing. Never just a moment in the past. That is the point of this verse. So many of us are trying to rely on this moment in the past. You need to check your faith. Check and see. Does it have a heartbeat? Is it real? Is it producing change in the present? Then he goes to this, a summarization of the gospel. And so he's trying to remind them of how he proclaimed the gospel and what the response was to it. And verses 3 and 4 gives us the summary of the gospel. I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. So Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. You see the little preposition there, for, right? F-O-R. Christ died for our sins. 
If you highlight your Bible or you mark in it, you need to circle that. The Greek preposition is huper, and that means in the place of and because of. We're talking about substitutionary atonement for you theologians. Christ died for you. He died in your place because of your sinfulness. Christ died for sinners. But notice the scripture here says, in accordance with the scriptures. Now, for you dispensationalists, you're in a conundrum now. In accordance with what scriptures is Paul speaking? Remember when 1 Corinthians was written, the New Testament had not yet been put together. Paul is speaking in reference to the Old Testament. The Old Testament proclaims and screams Christ died for sinners. In the name of Jesus of Nazareth, what do you think all that goat killing and sheep killing was about? Christ died in the place of sinners. The gospel was preached, the Bible says, to Abraham. What gospel? That his son Isaac was a sinner and deserved to die, but God provided himself a ram to die in his place. Christ died for sinners. It's all through the Old Testament. When the children of Israel were being delivered out of Egypt, And the Lord said, if you kill a lamb and you put its blood over the doorpost, on the lintel on the doorpost, the death angel will pass over you. What do you think that was about? Christ died for sinners. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. Christ died for sinners. The Old Testament over and over and over tells us Christ died in the place of sinners. The Old Testament is the gospel, you guys. It is the gospel. You say, no, it's the law. No, the Old Testament contains the law, but it's the gospel. Christ died for sinners. Christ dying for sinners is not a New Testament invention. In the book of Genesis, we see Christ would die for sinners. In the book of Isaiah, but he was pierced for our transgressions. The word for there, what? Because of and in the place of. The scriptures speak constantly of Christ dying for sinners. Then it says that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day according to scriptures. What scriptures? Well, the Old Testament. Physical death and bodily resurrection is pointed to here. Well, where do we see that in the Old Testament? Isaiah 53. And they made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death. He was raised on the third day. Where is that in the scriptures? Jonah 1.17. As Jonah was in the belly of the fish... Three days and three nights, so the Son of Man will be in the heart of the earth three days and three nights. Hosea 6.2 says, on the third day he will raise us up. Psalm 16 tells us, he doesn't mention three days, but it does say, he, his body would not see decay. You remember when Lazarus was buried? 
Four days. Why? Because on the fourth day begins to putrefy. But Christ would not be in the grave that long. He would be raised. This is why Jesus could clearly say to the Pharisees, Moses spoke of me. The Old Testament tells us and declares the gospel over and over and over again. No one is saved by anything but the gospel. No one ever has been. No one ever will be. Just by the gospel. Now, on another grammatical note, while we're playing grammar, the words here died and buried. You see those in your Bible there. That Christ died and he was buried. You see those? Both of those also are in the aorist tense and means... That they happened at a moment and point in time. It's a factual moment in history. But then you go down and you see he was raised. And guess what? Yes, it's a different tense. This is the perfect tense. And it means that he was raised at a point in time. But that this is his present continuing state of existence. Do you know what the scripture is telling you there? The scripture is telling you he died once. He was buried once. But he was raised and he will forever continue to exist in a resurrected life. He will never die again. Do you see what you can learn from reading the Bible? This is factual, verifiable. It's the powerful gospel through which God works to save sinners. And so I would just say to you, don't ever forget this. This is the only way that people are saved. Not only that, this is the only means that you need to see people saved in all generations, in all eras, and from all nationalities. Just one simple thing. Christ died for sins according to the scriptures that he was buried and he rose again on the third day according to the scriptures. That's what people must grasp and grapple with if they would become a Christian. Those startling and astonishing realities. We're not talking figuratively here. We're not talking metaphorically. We're talking historically. This is reality. One of the things I've hoped I have taught you since I've been here is we don't need to trick people into the kingdom we don't need to entertain them into the kingdom we don't need to coddle them into the kingdom we confront them with the everlasting gospel and it either saves or it doesn't and just let it be the gospel remember above all things the proclamation of the gospel And Paul goes on and says in verses 5 through 11, but I want you to remember the verification of the gospel. How do you know it's real? How how, how do you know it's real? Well, verses 5 through 11. And that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I'm the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, 
though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. And so he says, remember how the gospel is verified here. How do you know that you're believing the right thing? How do you know this? Well, you have Jesus' appearance to devoted apostles, first of all, in verses 5 and verse 7. Verse 5 says, he appeared to Cephas, then the 12. And Cephas is just the Aramaic word or Aramaic name for Simon Peter. And we know that in the upper room, after the resurrection of the dead, the men of Emmaus said that they'd seen the Lord. And they also said, he is risen and he appeared to Simon Peter. So we know that to be true. Verse 7, there's an appearance to James and then to all the apostles again. James is mentioned here. This is Jesus' half-brother who did not believe in him just a few weeks before his crucifixion, before Jesus' crucifixion. But now we see in the Bible James' total change and James becomes the pastor of the church at Jerusalem. I would like to have seen that meeting. That, that's the one I would have liked to have seen. You know, James and, and, and the other brothers of Jesus, half-brothers of Jesus the whole time, you know, they're challenging him, you know, show us that you're the Messiah, let's see it, and, you know, we don't believe you. They go, they go try to take him, he's speaking to a group of people, and they, they try to go kidnap him, like, hey, our man, our half-brother, he's crazy, let's go get him, I think he needs to be institutionalized, let's go get him. And they talk their mom, Mary, into going, we're going to get him, and we're going to kind of whisk him away, you know, we don't want to... We don't want to embarrass him, but man, he's, a nut. he's nuts. He's gone off his rocker. And so that was James. And I would like to have seen this appearance. You know, James sitting at home and Jesus just appearing going, surprise. What do you think now, dude? And then he's like, now I know why you beat me in Scrabble all the time. So, yeah. So, this, so James, he, there's a total change in James' life here. What, what, would, what would explain James being the doubter? Uh, and the antagonist of, uh, against Jesus here, suddenly being willing to lose his life for the sake of this message. It would have to be something verifiable, something that would say, I'm willing to stake my life on that. And the only thing that would be is an encounter with the resurrected Christ. Now, in this scripture, you see that Paul uses the words, the 12 and so on, and we realize that there are only 11 Right? Because, you know, Judas, you know, spilled his guts, right? And so that's why I tell people the difference between repentance and regret. Peter poured out his heart and then Judas spilled his guts. So those are the difference, right? So Judas is dead. But this word, it's a title for those, those followers, those initial followers of Jesus. And so Paul's not expecting us to count, you know, it's not taking role here. He's just saying... The twelve, so that, that group of people. Now then Jesus has an appearance to a large audience after his resurrection. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time. And I don't know exactly when this happened in the scripture. I have some guesses, but I'm not sure exactly. But Paul is mentioning these people as a challenge to the Corinthians. He's saying, you don't have to believe me. Go and ask them. We have 500 eyewitnesses. Go ask them. Let me ask you a question. Would 500 witnesses stand up in court? Absolutely. And he says, you go ask them. Most of them are still alive. Check it out for yourself. Check it out for yourself. And then Jesus appears to an unworthy adversary. And that would be the Apostle Paul when he was Saul before he became Paul. Last of all, he says, to one untimely born, he also 
appear to me. Notice here Paul's awareness of his unworthiness. You know, we read the the epistles written by Paul and he seems to be a very confident man. And he seems to be at sometimes abrasive. Sometimes he seems to be, uh, you know, it hurts people's feelings left and right. I mean, you know, this guy just like a bulldozer. And when you see his heart, though, you realize he knows where he came from. And he can't understand anybody not being completely enamored and obsessed with Jesus Christ. He can't understand anybody being any other way. Why not? Because this was the man that persecuted Jesus by killing his followers. And when God reached down and grabbed hold of such a man and made him the apostles to the Gentiles... You owe the Apostle Paul the gospel, the applause for the gospel. Because without the Apostle Paul, you would not have heard the gospel. Because you all are barbarians from England and France and ungodly places like that. You weren't even part of the civilized world. But God reached out and grabbed hold of this man. So this is why he says, he speaks of his unworthiness. He says, I'm like one untimely born. He means, I'm, I'm compared to the other apostles I'm like a weak, premature baby, one without strength. He says, I'm the least of the apostles. I'm unworthy to be called an apostle. Why? Because I persecuted the church of God. And Jesus made it clear that an attack upon his church is an attack upon him. Paul's response. It compelled him, he said, to work harder than anyone else. Did you notice that? He said, in verse number 10, I worked harder than any of them. Though it was not I, but the grace of God that's in me, God's energy, God's power. But Paul put forth work. He worked harder than any of the rest of them. Why? Because he felt so unworthy. You know what we need? We need a little bit more attitude of unworthiness among us. Many of us are somewhat presumptuous. We think that God only had to do a little bit of saving when he got us. We're not really that bad of a sinner. And when we think of ourselves that way, we're exactly, we become exactly the kind of Christian that tries to do the least and get by. We feel like Jesus had to do the least to save us. So therefore, we do the least to get by in serving him. What can I get away with? What's the least that I can do and it be counted as good enough? So many of us think that way because we think we're worthy. But if you are gravely aware of your unworthiness, then you will labor with all of your heart. Jesus said this, he who is forgiven little, loves little. If we think we've only been forgiven a little bit, then we'll love him very little. But if we think we've been forgiven a lot, we'll love him a lot. You know, the irony of all of that is nobody's been forgiven little. We just think we have. But the truth of the matter is, rebellion against God comes in all shapes and sizes. From people who are polite, soft-spoken, but they are just as rebellious toward God as anyone else. Or the loud, boisterous person that takes God's name in vain every third word. Both are great sinners. Needing a savior. 
We need a little more attitude of unworthiness among us that we don't deserve it. I've told my staff many times it'd be time to recruit church or church members to serve in certain ways and uh, you know the nominating committee or whatever it would be and talk with them and I and I would remind them this almost every time I said I want to remind you something you're not begging people to do anything they don't deserve the opportunity to do it you need to understand you are offering them a privilege you're offering them an opportunity to serve their king it's an honor to be asked. Don't go out there acting like you're begging people to do something for you. You're not. Don't beg them. You give them an opportunity and let them get a chance to serve their king. They're not worthy of it. But by God's grace, he may grant it. Nobody's worthy to serve the Lord. You deacons, y'all not worthy to be in that office. You realize that? I'm not, I'm not worthy to be a pastor. I'm not worthy of this. But God, by His grace, granted it to us. And we need to remember that doing this is a gift that He gives us. It's not something we earned. So now, how do you know the gospel is for real? It's been verified by eyewitnesses. I have a relative in my family, a relative, and he you know, constantly, how do you know? And all I said, I just believe the eyewitnesses. I don't know what you want me to say. I'm just going to go with what the eyewitnesses say. I don't know what you want me to tell you. Remember the verification of the gospel. Now remember this, the application of the gospel. And I'm going to jump down to verses 20 through 23 now. And this is the application of this for your life now, even now. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by man came death, by man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. Remember the application of the gospel. The gospel includes the resurrection from the dead. The gospel is not just that Jesus died for sinners. Substitutionary atonement is absolutely indispensable. We're not arguing that. But he's not, if he's not raised from the dead, then what is your future? Then what? Is it just annihilationism? We just kind of dissolve in the atmosphere? What, what does this mean? So if Christ has been raised from the dead, then it means something. It's going somewhere. This gospel thing has got a future to it. If he's been raised from the dead, then we should be able to expect resurrection. Now, Paul speaks in verse 20 of the fact, the first fruit. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. He says, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. The first fruit is the guarantee of a greater harvest, is it not? If the ground's not going to produce, then there's no fruit to begin with. But if the ground begins to produce and we have the first fruits of a harvest, then what we have is an anticipation of the greater harvest of the whole field ripening. Jews were to offer first fruits to the Lord. Now listen to this very carefully. Let me see if I can confuse you. The Jews were to offer the first fruits to the Lord on the day after the Sabbath that followed the Passover. What day would that be when Jesus died? 
the day after the Sabbath that followed the Passover. Y'all need to get your calendars out? That would be Sunday. What is it that happens on Sunday? The resurrection of the Son of God. The first fruit of the harvest. The first fruit from the dead, the Bible says. Then what happens? 49 days later, the Jews had the assignment to present an offering of the new grain. So get this. On the Sunday, after the Sabbath that followed the Passover, that was the first fruit. Then 49 days later, they were to offer another offering that was the new grain, that is, the new harvest here. And they offered a portion of that to the Lord. Do you see the connections here? The Old Testament offerings pointed to an eternal reality. And that is Christ is the first fruit. See, even in the Old Testament, ear of corn meant something. Christ is the first fruit. And, and God is preaching this and telling the Israelites over and over and over again. Did they ever stop to think, this is weird? We, we're supposed to take like some of the, the first fruit and offer it to God. God doesn't eat. So what is this about? And then 49 days later. Pentecost. We're supposed to take new grain. And offer again. This makes no sense. Why do we do this? God's preaching the gospel to them. Through wheat and corn. Something they might be able to get. They might be able to understand. The Old Testament points to this reality. That Christ would rise from the dead. First fruits. And then at Pentecost, there would be a great harvest. And if there is no first fruit, if there is no first fruit on Sunday, if there is no person that rises from the dead the first time ever in history, if there is no person that does that, then we can expect that there is no harvest to come. If there's no first fruit, then there's no harvest. There's nothing else coming from the earth. If we don't get the first from the earth, we can expect we're not getting anything else from the earth. But if one comes from out of the dead, out of the earth, and we can expect that there's going to be a harvest of those who also come from out of the earth. Do you see the connection? The first fruit guarantees that there is a harvest coming from among the dead. Now what's the effect of the first fruit? 21-23 gives us the effect here. By a man came death, verse 21 says. What, what man? That's Adam, of course, and it spells it out here. And the, this is the principle. Then by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. Okay. If, if things are going to happen in the lives of, of humans, the connection's got to be with other humans. Animals can't do this for you. Why? Animals don't have a soul, by the way. When Sparky bites the dust, end of it. You understand? You, you guys okay? Some of you are fanning now. Oh, I can't believe it. You will not see Sparky in heaven. Now, there may be animals in heaven, but they will, it will not be your dog because your dog is a sinner. So there's going to be a new heaven, new earth, so I assume there will be some animals and stuff, you know, like that, but uh, it won't be your dog. I've tried to preach to some of y'all's dogs and they will not accept Christ. So there's no hope. For as, verse 22 says, for as in Adam all die. Now what does it mean to be in Adam? 
It, it means that you're in his people. We're connected to Adam. Adam is our federal head. He's the head or leader of, of the entire human race. Why? Because he's the first. And so our connection to Adam, our relationship to Adam, we're all related to him by birth. What happens in that connection, let, let me tell you what Adam gives us as an inheritance. Sin and death. Thank you. Some of you feel like you got shortchanged, like when your parents passed away and you didn't get nothing. They spent it all. That's my goal right as well. Spend all of it. Leave nothing behind. But, you know, you say, don't worry, Adam's got you covered. But he says, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. So what's that? The connection. If you have that relationship with Christ, then you're no longer in Adam. You're no longer in that nation. You no longer have Adam as your representative. Now in Christ, Christ being your representative. So here's what, you, you do what Adam did. What, what does Adam do as our leader? He sins. And he brings death on us. What does Christ do? He kills sin and rises from the dead. And so in him, we have what he has. You say, well, sometimes people complain, like, it's not fair, you know, Adam sinned and, and that's caused me to be a sinner and it's just really not fair. Okay, well then stop sinning and it'll be all right. You can't. But the beauty of this is that the beauty of this whole scheme is that, yes, in Adam, all die. But if you get in Christ, all that are in Christ will be made alive. Now, we have here, um, in no way is, is verse uh, 22. I'd I, I, I say that I even have to say this. I'm going to assume you know this. But verse 22 is not teaching some kind of universalism. It means all that are in Adam die. Not that, it, it, all that are in him, right? So all that are connected to him, all of them die. Well, who would that be? Everybody. So also, by analogy then, all in Christ shall be made alive. It doesn't mean everybody in the world. It just means all that are in Christ will be made alive. So the principle is, if you're connected to Adam, 100% of the time, you're going to die. You're, you're going to have a separated relationship from God 100% of the time. But conversely, if you hop out of that and you opt into Jesus, then connected to him 100% of the time, you will be made alive. 100% without fail. That's how it works. The all refers to those who are in Christ, those who are bonded to him as their representative. Now, we look at this section of scripture. This is Christianity 101. This chapter is what it's about. Now, a lot of times as pastors, we preach from 1 Corinthians 15 at funerals. And I've become increasingly aware of the fact that most people do not understand what's going on in this chapter. And so many times I've, especially if it's the burial of a, of a Christian I stand at the graveside and I'll stand at the head of the casket and I will tell the family. Now, what we did at the funeral home was phase one. We talked about the soul. But this is phase two. This is the body. What are we doing with it? We're not disposing of it. We're storing it. We're storing it away. Why? Because our Savior is a living Savior. Our Savior has risen from the dead. 
And what we know to be true is this. At his coming, then is resurrected those who belong to him. So we store this body away until that moment. Now, some, I, I don't really, some of you are going to come to me after this and say, Pastor, do you believe in creation? I mean, cremation. I believe in creation too. But you believe in cremation. I want to say this to you. It's 12.05. In five minutes, I'm off the clock. And it's up to you to figure it out from now on. Stop asking me stupid questions. I just stop. Today is the day I ban all stupid questions. No more. So, you know, you do what you, you know, well, how's God going to, don't worry about it, okay? So, somebody asked me, well, how's God going to raise that? You know, and my, my answer is always this, okay, a sailor falls overboard and is eaten by a shark. And a shark, you know, passes it out of his body. Then comes a catfish, and a catfish is caught by man. Man, okay, whatever. Okay, so it's, it's fine. God can handle it, all right? Here's the conclusion, though. What, what do we draw from this? Here, here's what we have to get figured out. Number one, the gospel is real. It is true. It's not my truth, your truth, somebody's truth. This is God's truth. It stands forever. It will never change. If man would be right with God, have his sins forgiven, have the power of sin broken in his life, and spend eternity with God, it is through the saving work of the gospel. There is no other way. So this is the Christ that we preach. This is the gospel that we preach. And this is the God who saves through the gospel. The question for you is, are you in Christ? Have you really made that changeover from being an an earthling to being a Christling? Have you really done that? Have you dropped living for the world? Have you just said, man, I'm just tired of it? I'm not living that way. The, the selfishness and sin, I'm not, I'm not going to be dominated by that anymore, that way of life. No. And I know that I'm a sinner. I need a Savior. I can't save myself. Christ has died in my place. God has punished His own Son in my place. I'm embracing that as my only hope. And since He has risen from the dead and He grants eternal life, I turn my life over to Him now to be led by Him rather than being led by my selfishness and sin. And the person who makes that kind of faith commitment, guess what you have? Eternal life. That means you have life with God now. And you will have a resurrected body reunited to your soul at his coming. And so shall we ever be with the Lord. The question is, are you in Christ? The second question would be this. In light of the reality of bodily resurrection. What should you be doing with your body now? Where should it be? What should it be doing? How should, be, how should you be managing it? If your body is going to be used for eternal purposes in the future, then why not start now? With weak, frail, failing bodies that we have, why not use them up for the kingdom of God rather than expending the life energy left in them Merely on ourselves. Remember, as Paul said in this this epistle, our bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit. It doesn't belong to us anymore. So our bodies should be and do what honors Christ and proves that the resurrected life is already in us even before our bodies are resurrected. Brothers and sisters, I just say this to you. I remind you of the gospel that I preached to you and you received. Stand in it. Let's pray together.
Father, thank you so much for giving us clarity on the gospel, what it is. Indeed, it's very good news for those who believe. It's very bad news for those who don't. But we praise you and thank you, Father, that you have clearly shown us in your word that we have a Savior who has come, died for us, and rose again. Now, Lord, I pray that you would grant faith to those who are not yet believing. I pray for those who are believing that you would grant stability, steadfastness, the ability to stand in the gospel, to live their lives based upon this reality, to look forward to the resurrection of the dead, to look forward to the coming of our King, to live with their lives focused upon that moment coming, that our bodies here would not be wasted on the frivolous, but instead be used for eternal purposes. Now, Lord, may your word do its wonderful work in our hearts and lives, form us and change us into the likeness of your Son. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.